You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew. Turn to Matthew chapter 19. We read through verses 13 to the end of the chapter, 13 through 30. Then little children were brought to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. When he had placed his hands on them, he went on from there. Now a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, obey the commandments. Which ones? The man inquired. Jesus replied, Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept. The young man said, what do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples heard this. They were greatly astonished and asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Peter answered him, We have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. At the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or fields for My sake, will receive a hundred times as much, and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, God loves you. What does that mean to us anymore? What does it mean? One of the worst perils, of course, in the modern church is that Christ's work of salvation has been utterly devalued. It just doesn't seem to mean much to people anymore. It doesn't seem to impact lives. It seems as if that old, old story that we love to hear has died. And in this postmodern world, the story has just been sort of left behind with the changing winds of time. And what a seemingly impossible task for the church, isn't it? The terminology that is special to us, the same old words that we use in attempt after attempt to call people to believe in Jesus Christ seems to have absolutely no power anymore. We drive down the road, and at least it's this way in the States, 
I drive down the road and I'll see an old billboard and plastered on the billboard is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. In L.A., when I was down there, there's an old neon sign that still sits there and lights up the night. It's been shining there for years and those bright red letters still say the same thing. Jesus saves. Jesus Church after church, of course, attempts to share that good news. The gospel, as we call it, with the world. And sadly, it seems that few want to hear it. Why do so many have so little interest in the only message that is able to save their souls? What's happened? Why has the news lost, it seems, its effectiveness? Why is it that this same old story seems to lose its grip and its power over men's lives? So that even we as Christians can come here and worship and not give Him the heart. Go through the repetition. Go through the words. The effect seems to be minimal, often on the inside walls of the church. Minister after minister complains that their congregations are moving at the pace of snails. The gospel seems to be smacking up against the brick walls of men's hearts with little effect. And then the pastor opens the word. He knows his calling. He knows what he has to do. And he opens up and he reads years ago of the Apostle Paul saying, Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Woe is me. Woe is me. Woe is me if I do not preach it. That's what he's called to do. And to his sadness, it seems that people are tired of it. Another prisoner yawns in the pew as the minister speaks of the salvation of the Lord. Hearts and bellies are full. Men are complacent off the fat of the land. We don't need more gospel, they say. Give me more life application. I hear that all the time. Give me more life Application, or let me say it another way. I don't want gospel, I want law. Give me law. Is that what you want? What's happened? I know I'm painting sort of a dark picture. What's happened? Isn't this the power of God unto salvation for all who will believe the gospel? Then why is it seeming to have so little impact? The answer is really quite simple. It's very simple. People today have lost a sense of their need for it. They're told that God loves them. They're told that God has a wonderful plan for their life. And and they're told that Jesus died for them. and, and, And But there's no absolute urgency to embrace Jesus Christ in true faith. Urgency. So we think we sort of get beyond all this gospel stuff. We think we've already walked that line as Christians. We don't need that anymore. People treat it as if it's sort of disposable. It's said that, as the story goes, there was an old man in Scotland. And for a long time, he had been longing to hear the gospel preached. He just didn't hear it anymore. And a pastor, of course, his pastor had taken the progressive approach. He didn't preach the gospel. He was preaching moralism. He was preaching self-help. He was preaching self-esteem, earthly uh, progress, earthly gain. One day the pastor actually started preaching Christ. He actually started preaching Christ in him crucified. 
old man stood up in the back. And he said, hold ye there, preacher man. Go no further. Stay here. He was starving for the gospel. He wanted to hear about his Savior. What has, what has happened? What have we done? Loved ones, we have to cling to these truths. All of who we are and all that we know because they are life-changing truths. And when the Lord, once you really begin to live in light of the fact that, that the gospel is for the Christian daily and that we need it daily to be nourished and fed upon, that is the only way that one will begin to lose a man-centered approach to religion and really begin to live in the light of what it means that Jesus died and saved us from our sins. I submit to you that in many ways, today, we are in need of going back to the elementary principles, as Paul said so many years ago. We are in need to feel the weight of those words press heavy on our hearts. Jesus saved. Well, this morning, that's what we're considering. That the, why did the uh, Son of God, the eternal Son of God, why is He called Jesus, meaning Savior? Because He saves us from our sins. He is the only one through whom salvation comes. And this morning we consider a passage that teaches us very clearly what it means that Jesus saves. It's my prayer that the devil will never creep into our hearts and tire us to hear about these words, Jesus saves. Let's consider uh, this text this morning under these three points, if you're taking notes, the crisis of salvation, the impossibility of salvation, and the possibility of salvation. Matthew 19, of course, is a very unique passage. And we really cannot separate it from the surrounding context, what comes before and what follows. And at the beginning of chapter 18, if you have your scriptures open, Jesus was teaching something very important. The disciples were very concerned about who is the greatest in the kingdom. In fact, we know that they had argued about this before. And sometimes we read that and we get rather astonished about the argument. But at one point, remember, the mother of two of them asked Jesus if they could sit one on the right hand and one on the left. And right out of the hearts of the disciples, of course, Jesus reacted very strongly to this. But out of the hearts of the disciples, we see a natural tendency towards pride. We see a natural tendency towards self-righteousness, toward thinking that we deserve all of this and that we can earn it. That if we go through the motions of it, somehow that will facilitate and bring God's favor. And Jesus knows all of this, so what happens? Well, if you study the connection to the passage that we designate as the rich young ruler, Right before this, he sets a a small child in front of them. And he said to them, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest. I guess I see this in my daughter already. About 20 months, and the way she trusts in mom and dad, the way she looks to, to me for approval and love, even more for her life, and I, I, this has really been impressed upon me, her entire existence is dependent upon us for everything. She couldn't live without all dependency upon us to provide. And Jesus is really saying the same thing right here in this passage. He says to his disciples, you must become as this little child in full trust, 
in simple humility and childlike faith. Looking to me for everything. Well, in verse 13 of chapter 19, children were brought to him. What happened? We read of the disciples rebuking him. They still hadn't understood this. And Jesus says very pointedly here, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. It's as if Jesus is reminding them again, Look, you must become like one of these. You want to go to heaven? You must. Surely, if that's the case, you had better not forbid these little ones to come. Because you must come to me like them. In what? Dependency, trust, and belief. Childlike belief. And I guess I pause to say that's one of the hardest things for us. We exalt ourselves. We look to our works. We are prone towards elitism. But the most difficult thing in life is to deny the impulses that reek of pride and humble ourselves as little children before Him. Pride has to be rooted out. Everything must be exposed at Jesus' feet in childlike dependency. That's Jesus' call. That's our Savior. Well, now Jesus is going to transition a bit. And He's going to teach His disciples what that looks like with a very difficult life circumstance. Now Jesus sets before them this example to the contrary. He shows them the exact opposite of what childlike faith looks like. Verse uh, 16. Pick up there. Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do or that I may get or have eternal life? Lord, I want eternal life. It's equivalent to saying, I want your salvation. Show me what I need to do and hey, I'll do it. Lay it before me. You show me what good work I need to earn my salvation. And here we really come to the heart of it all. Much of what is the problem today, right out of the gates, is that people have a fundamentally wrong view about God, a fundamentally wrong view about salvation, and a fundamentally wrong view about themselves. I don't care, I guess, who it is. This mentality prevails in all of us. And much of the reason why it seems that the gospel is having such little impact in men's lives is because people are coming to Jesus with a very low view of Him, if not a wrong view of salvation. Look, if somebody approached you today and said, I want to be saved. Give me the gospel. Tell me the gospel. What would you do? Well, I submit to you, most of you would say, well, just believe. Believe and you will be saved. It's true, isn't it? Let me ask. You believe there's one God. You do well. The demons believe that and shudder. Are they saved? The question, of course, is what kind of belief, right? That's the question. And the fundamental problem is today is that so few have really felt the urgency They've really felt the reason, the motivation to embrace Jesus Christ in true faith. So what does Jesus do? What's he do? What an opportune time to tell him about grace, right? 
What an opportune time to tell them, hey, salvation is nothing you can do. It's nothing that you can earn. What an opportune time to point him to his path of heading right to the cross. The shedding of blood for the removal, the washing away of sin. What a time for Jesus to say, look unto me. You will be saved. Right? That's what we would do today. Crusades do that. Walk down an aisle. You got it. And you call me good. Striking, isn't it? No one is good but one. That is God. If you want to enter eternal life, keep the commandments. Challenges his view of God, doesn't he? And then he sets this, this standard in front of him. The law, of course, the law that exposes God's utter holiness. His otherness from the creation, the creature-creator distinction, of course. And he sets before them that they might see, that he might see his sin. We read, of course, in Galatians 3 that the law was added for transgressions because of sin, right? Why? So that people would recognize and realize their horrible and lost condition and feel the weight of that coming down upon them, like we just sang in, in Psalm 32 that David felt. It was the law that crushed David. And they would begin to think of the terrible consequences. The consequences of unending torment in hell forever. Burning forever. You just don't hear that much anymore. That's the reality. That's what's coming. God comes with the hammer of His law and He smites souls. No one will want salvation, of course, without recognizing what's coming. No one will want salvation without understanding the grand doctrine of total depravity. No one will look for a cure, Jesus said, if they don't know anything's wrong. I always say, that's why it's a terrible fallacy. Terrible fallacy to tell the most unrepentant, the most vile sinner that, that hates God and despises His law that God loves them and has a wonderful plan for their life. You look at Jesus' message, loved ones, it was so utterly different than the stuff we're hearing today. His message was, unless you repent, you will perish. That's not a wonderful plan for people's lives. Keep the law if you want to be saved, says Jesus. But if you stumble just one point, you're done. You're done, James said. Terrible answer comes back, doesn't it, looking at the text. I've kept all these things from my youth. What do I still lack? My, my, I guess the, the greatest difficulty in looking at a text like this, the greatest difficulty that I exposed here, the hardest thing for man to understand and comprehend is to become broken over his sin. We sit here prideful as if we deserve this without the kind of heart he's looking for. The hardest thing is for us to come to the grips that our own hearts are wastelands of evil. And Jesus, of course, is able to look right into his heart and point out the sin that was gripping him and ruining his life, and it was that of covetousness. Jesus says, if you want to be perfect, look, if you want to be perfect, go, sell all you have, and give to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me want to be perfect, do all that God commands. 
then you will enter His heaven. Then you can have eternal life. If you're completely holy, sell everything you have. I know you have this problem. You're a covetous man. Your possessions are ruling your life. Get rid of them. Go to radical extents to get rid of the problem. Then come follow me. Don't take up my name. You're gripped in some sin. That's what Jesus is saying. What happens? What happens? But when he heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus, of course, is telling us, he lays before his disciples and and he lays before us this morning that many well-meaning people want salvation. And today they're told, they're told, say, hey, say a certain prayer, sign on the dotted line, say the sinner's prayer, and you're in. You're in. But here we're faced with the greatest crisis. Crisis of the, of the matter. That very few understand why they need it. And they express a very low uh, man-centered view of it in their lives. And so I ask you to think about the picture presented to you right now, loved ones. Look at the text. Jesus says, you must become as a little child. You must be converted to enter the kingdom of heaven. And of such, right, is the kingdom of God. Of such. Right after that, he drives a man away who wanted salvation. That's the picture who was very earnest, who was very respectful, he bowed, who wanted eternal life. But Jesus, on his part, said, no. Not that he couldn't have it. But he had to get things right. You can't just come to Jesus and live in the grips of sin. You see, what Jesus is teaching us here Notice that this man walks away sad. I'm always moved by that. That breaks every handbook evangelism guide in our day. Don't let him get away. You imagine the disciples seeing that. You're letting, we're fishers of men and you're letting this guy off. Go get him. Go get him. Jesus wasn't willing. Jesus, in a sense, you think about the text here. This man was not willing to count the cost. He had, he was putting his, his hand to the plow, right? And he was still looking back. Remember that verse? He was still building bigger barns for this life. He was still eating and drinking, marrying and, and having a good time. Having the good life. He still wanted to live it up and combine that with some religion for Jesus. I guess there are many like that. They'll take up the name of Christ, but they have not been willing to leave all and follow Him. They're gripped in sin. Not willing to come to Him as a child. And that's the point of the text. Is they have not come to see how great the crisis is. And I always say today only half of the message is, is given. I've said this before, if you don't give the whole truth, if you don't give the truth of man's terrible predicament before God, how bad he is in breaking the law, which even the law today is thrown out, how bad he is, the consequences of this, and eternal hell, if these things are left out of the message, and it's out of balance and out of whack, as so many have chosen to do today, every time you will undervalue and you will undermine the good news of salvation. It's not that good if things aren't that bad. 
And I suggest to you today, this is why the gospel is having such little impact in men's hearts. Because Jesus isn't all that special. There isn't a real urgency to flee to Him as a child because they have not come to see their miserable state and why they, what they need to be saved from, the wrath of God. Boys and girls, the, the chocolate cake always tastes better after the peas and squ- uh, squash, right? But you know you need the peas and squash. You have to eat the peas and squash. Well, the same is true about the gospel. It isn't all that sweet if you first don't hear the bad news. People of God, I say this trembling because I stand in a pulpit and I preach to people week in and week out who confess and believe in Jesus Christ. And I say this trembling. Look, many pastors and teachers will find themselves in hell on that day because they refuse to give these truths. To you. God's people. You see, Jesus transitions at this point to speak about the impossibility of salvation. He really wants to impress this upon His disciples. They're going to be sent out as the apostles soon to the ends of the earth. And He impresses this upon them and He impresses upon us that humanly speaking, it's impossible for man to be saved. Humanly speaking. That's what He was conveying. Look at verse 23. And Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. He literally says, A rich man with difficulty shall enter the kingdom of heaven. That's jolting language. In fact, Jesus is saying it's so difficult, it's impossible. He gives this proverbial analogy of a camel, the largest animal in the region in Jesus' day. And he says, look, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. That sounds easy. He's speaking in the most absolute terms possible, isn't he? He gives this bizarre, almost in a sense, analogy. A man who was very in earnest had just walked away from him. And and through it, he teaches that his riches, this man's riches, his covetousness had such a grip upon him. It was so powerful in his life. It was so sitting enthroned on his heart that it's impossible, in a sense, humanly speaking, qualifying it with that, impossible, humanly speaking, for him to be saved. It was uh, St. Augustine who made a very valid point. I think he said that the reason men aren't as bad as they possibly could be in all areas of life is generally because there is one particular sin that people are caught up in. That's true. All of us have have one particular sin that sort of suspends above all the others and does great damage in the heart. And of course, just breaking one of the commandments renders us guilty. Of the whole law. But, but this one sin can so reign there that even if we desire salvation, because this guy wanted it, even if we desire, even if we begin to sense some sort of need for Jesus, even if the impulse rises towards Christ, we still will not be willing in and of ourselves to take that sin off the throne of our hearts that masters us. Jesus says, if you're gonna be saved, You better be perfect. 
Wow. It's jolting. Look, he says, you know the commandments. You want salvation? Keep the law. But here's the problem. No one can. That's what he's driving towards. And since it's impossible due to the fall, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for you to be saved, is what Jesus is saying. Now, loved ones, I'm convinced that we must come to the place of the disciples here. Look what happens. They hear this, and the first thing is that they're greatly astonished. That's what we read. I mean, we can't get the sense of what went through their hearts at this moment. I hope this language is somewhat jolting to us, because it should be. It went through their hearts. They were exceedingly amazed, as it translates. It was panic amazement. They were very much of the common view of the day that riches were a sign of of great blessing, and riches are a sign of blessing, but it was strongly believed in that day that with riches came righteousness. If you're rich, you've got to be a righteous guy. According to the day, the rich had the great opportunity to give alms to the poor. They had time to study the Torah. Thus, they were viewed as the really blessed of society, the ones that everyone looked up to who were giving strong pursuits to righteousness. Against that background, Jesus hears these words, right? Think about what he said. Assuredly, I say to you, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. What were they hearing? Well, they were hearing, right? If the most privileged and blessed of society can't be saved, the greatest of this world, then nobody can. What was the next thing that came out of their mouth? Who then can be saved? What about us? All of life, I guess, comes down to this question. Jesus was driving them to this. He was driving them to despair. And he had done it because the question, the answer to that question is self-evident. No one, no one, all human salvation is impossible. Impossible. Across the board. In and of ourselves. That was their conclusion. And it's when we come here, it's when we walk this path, when we tread this line, that we see that Jesus is teaching us that God didn't give us His law so that we think that we might get justified by it or through it. No, no. He gave the law for condemnation to expose the darkness of our hearts. Paul said that. Uh, the law is good, but I, I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, thou shall not covet. It exposed it. Have you felt the weight of that question? You see, I submit to you that much of the church today isn't preaching Jesus' gospel. This must be driven home in the heart of every sinner. Who can be saved? I guess as I grow in my own walk as a pastor, and it's always a stumble to grow more in holiness, it's for everyone. But you see more and more the evil that resides there, and that question becomes more real to me all the time. As you grow, you see your sin more. And that question becomes real. Who can be saved? Who then can be saved? And all of a sudden, that question drives us away from ourselves. And just at the moment, my proud heart begins to think, well, now I'm getting my life together. 
And I'm having this spiritual little revival inside. And Jesus is somehow more pleased with me. And then this root of sin will just grow out of the heart and take you right back into something that sat dormant. And I ask again, who can be saved? Who then can be saved? Then the words of sheer grace come in verse 26. Sheer grace. But Jesus looked at me. I, I wish we could get a sense of this. Jesus looked and said to them, with men this is impossible. There it is. Impossible. There's the language. But with God, all things are possible. What a dramatic moment, right? He fixes his eyes upon them. And I could imagine the good shepherd in all compassion and in all love said this, with men it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. It's beautiful, isn't it? Essentially, Jesus is saying, I will have to make that provision. When the face of Jesus gazed upon them with such intent, probably in such power and such authority, he said at that moment they were looking at the image of the invisible God standing before them who had emptied himself, as Philippians 2 says, to save them. His very name told them that. Jesus, Joseph, and Mary, you name him Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. See, when we try everything, we still fall short. We have to constantly be renouncing ourselves, constantly be turning my eyes of faith to gaze upon this Jesus. It is Christ who is able to save to the uttermost. You know what this means, loved ones? You cannot call yourself a Christian if your salvation rests or your security rests in anything else. Some will pray to saints. Some will say Hail Marys. And numbers and numbers and repetitions and repetitions. Some will make pilgrimages. Some will do things to try to propitiate the wrath of their gods. That's why we're having problems today with people with suicide bombing. They think they're propitiating the wrath of their gods by doing that. will gain all these privileges in heaven. Some in reform camps today say you stay in the covenant through your good works. You're justified because you're sanctified. We, however, must place our hope and trust in the only Savior, Jesus Christ. Because in Him we have all we need for salvation. Let me say this. This is the bread and the butter of our theology as Reformed Christians. But one of the hardest things to do to simply deny ourselves and throw ourselves upon Christ. Do we think we're beyond these things? Do we think we can't be tempted in such a direction? Well, what did Paul say to the Galatians? This new church, this vibrant church. Oh, foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? And what was the problem? I marvel, said Paul. He was astonished that they were turning away so soon from him who had called them into the grace of Christ, what? To a different gospel. So soon, yeah, to a false gospel that said one is perfected by their works. You think we're not prone to those things? It resides in all of our hearts. Anything and everything contrary to the true gospel must be rooted out. In the light of this salvation, any teaching that advances that salvation is dependent in any way on man's free will or man's acceptance. And Arminianism is here condemned. Here condemned. 
There must be faith and trust in the only provision, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. You know, as we wrap this sermon up here, the one thing that's interesting is Peter doesn't quite get this, does he? In verse 27, he asks, See, look there, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? See all this connection, it's just amazing. Look, Lord, I've left my fishing business. Andrew and James and John have left their tax collecting collecting business. We've given all. What do we get? Self-satisfaction, Lord. I've said the creed today. I've put my money in the basket. I've fasted 40 days. I've done all my acts of religion. I've attended and I will attend church twice today. I attend the URC. I attend the Canadian Reformed Church. I attend the American Reformed Church. That's it, right? That's what's going to get me in. No. Your security is not in any of those things. So we gather every good work and we present it to the Lord on that day asking for a reward and you will find yourself with nothing but grave dust in your mouth. Look, says Peter, what shall we have? This is Cholton's statement. You know what's so ironic about that question? It's the same spirit of covetousness that filled the heart of the rich and ruler. Here you see election. Same spirit of covetousness that filled the rich and ruler. What is there for me to earn all this? Look what I've done. You hear what Peter's asking? Lord, this guy walked away. He couldn't stand up to the heat. We have. We've endured it. This guy, right, wouldn't give up his riches. We've given all of it up. He won't follow you. Look at us. We've left families. We've left all. We'll follow you. We have no place to lay our head with you. We didn't stop to bury the dead for our fathers, right? We have left all, unlike this guy. Therefore, what do we get? We've walked with you, Jesus. We know your ways. We were there from the beginning. You chose us. And so on. Well, Jesus doesn't deny it. There will be great rewards. In fact, in the next few verses, he affirms this. He says, in the regeneration, in other words, when the new heavens and the new earth becomes a reality, you who have followed me will sit on the twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or mother or father or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. Yeah, you're going to get great benefits and eternal life. Great reward. But, Notice that last clause. Many who are first shall be last, and last first. Look, Peter, you may be rewarded, but you had better not think it's based on your merit, your works. You think yourself something great in my kingdom. You're trusting in your own merits. You will find yourself last on that day. Those who are humble, those who are insignificant in the kingdom, it seems, those who labor out of gratitude, who are doing all the behind-the-scenes stuff, they will be exalted. Because they didn't do it for themselves. We can put it in this, in this term. What if, Peter, this rich young ruler comes back when he's an old man and begins to labor in my kingdom? Do you think you deserve more than him? What if on his deathbed, like the thief in the cross? It's interesting, loved ones, if you follow this text today, go back and read it. From here, Jesus tells a parable about workers in the vineyard and the ones who were brought in at the very last hour (laughs) received the same wage. I wonder if that rich young ruler was brought in. I don't know. We're not told. But they received the same wage. What's the point? Everything you have, everything I have, 
comes by grace. And grace alone. Because it's only through the atoning death of Christ that one can be saved. Why then should you enter heaven? Well, many will answer that in this day, and I've had relatives who've done this. The same way as this young man. I'm a pretty good guy. Paid my taxes. Done everything I should do. Done a lot of good things. I've never murdered. I've never committed adultery. Can you imagine this? Somebody standing before God on that day and offering something else to Him other than the sacrifice that He provided in Christ for us to be forgiven. Saying, you know, I thank You, Lord, for sending Jesus. I'm not that bad. I'm not that bad. The Father won't even hear Sin was so serious with God that He delivered up His only begotten Son. And in the heart of His afflictions, Jesus had to bear the eternal wrath of God in body and in soul to pay for your sin. Who would add to that? Have you felt the weight of your sin today? I guess that's the question. Are you honest with your Lord? Have you been in the positions of the disciples? Who then can be saved? And may that drive you to faith in Jesus like that of a child. I've always said, if we're really reformed, it should make us some of the most humble people in the world. It should. I often see different. I see pride. I see arguments and bitter disputes. It's, it's sickening. It should make us the most humble people in the world because everything we have comes from the gracious hand of God by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ's work alone. My task every week is to preach that gospel to the people he's put me in front of. Your pastor's task, both of them, is to do the same thing. May we never think we've gotten beyond it. It's something we need daily because every last bit of our spiritual lives are dependent upon his unmerited grace. May then, loved ones, we never take our eyes off of our Christ. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.